Go ahead and turn to Psalm 87. It's also on your uh, sheet from this evening. And so you can look at it there if you would like. Sorry, I could have made the font bigger. There was no space on the page, but I'm used to longer psalms. So, um, As we typically do, uh, poetic devices. So um, for the kids, if you are willing, I'd like you to help me out. So let me maybe help you out looking for. So when we look at verse 1 and we see something like God's foundation is in the holy mountains, uh, can one of the kids tell me what kind of picture does that give you in your mind? God's foundation is in the mountains. What kind of picture is um, the psalmist trying to make here? Where do you find a foundation? It's part of what? Do you know, Joel? What's a foundation part of? I'll give, you, I'll give you multiple choice. I'll give you multiple choice. Is it part of a tree, a house, or a pair of pants? Not the last one, right? It's part of a house, right? So it's a picture. Here's God's house, his foundation, his dwelling place. Now, does God actually have a foundation or a building that the mountains are kind of part of? No. But this is a picture of God having picked a place to dwell among his people. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Verse 2, we see another figure of speech where it says, The Lord loves the gates of Zion. How many of you, uh, when you say, things that I love, you think gates? I mean, I suppose if you're in a dangerous place. But uh, as a general rule, you don't think I love gates, right? So what is that figure of speech pointing us to? Who does God love? Jonathan? Yeah, the people of Jerusalem, perhaps even standing for all of the people of Israel that he's chosen, right? Um, verse 3, we have more of this kind of idea. Uh, verse 2 is a related thing, standing for a group of people. Verse 3 is what we would call personification. So when the psalmist says, glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, we don't really think about a city being talked about like it's a person, like this is a wonderful person, right? But that's the sort of picture that we have here, right? Uh, then we come to verse 4, and we have this mention of all of these nations. And when he mentions all of these nations... He says, I'll mention, for example, Rahab and Babylon among those who know me. Now, I think I might have, well, I'm not, actually not sure if I mentioned this or not. The first time I read this, I said, so is he talking about Rahab like the Canaanites, right? Because that's who we would associate with, the city of Jericho. But because we've seen that word come up in our study of Isaiah, Rahab was a symbol of pride. It stood for what nation? Anybody remember? Egypt, Egypt Okay. So he's saying people from Egypt and from Babylon, people from Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia. What is significant about all of those countries when it comes to the country of Israel? Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia. That's true. Let, let, they're against Israel, right? 
So these are Israel's enemies. So we should be surprised, I think, to find out that in verse 4, I shall mention these places among those who know me, right? Uh, he mentions in verse 5 this idea of those who are born in her. Now, when we say her, we're usually thinking of a person, but here he's speaking of the city of Jerusalem or of Zion, depending on which name we're looking at in the verse. So he says this is significant that someone was born in her, and if someone is born in one of those cities, I think he's making the implication that that person is what nationality or ethnicity? Israelite. Jewish, Israelite, along those lines, right? And so as a result, um, there is this, this shift or this emphasis on these people being special to God because he's chosen them. In verse 5 as well, when it says, the Most High himself will establish her, establish Zion, what is that referring to? Ultimately, God's care for for Israel, for the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem. When, when we saw in the story of Hezekiah, Hezekiah is afraid, he brings his request before God, and all these things come up. What is uh, his appeal? God, remember your people. What is God's response? I will defend her, right? And so we see that here as well. Um, verse 6, we have this interesting phrase where it says, The Lord will count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. So this idea of registering the peoples is what? Okay, counting at the very least, right? Some kind of a list. And I think as we look at the New Testament, we can say he's making a list of those who know and follow and trust in God. Corey, you're going to say? Yeah, and I think we do have that imagery there as well, that God's... I think there's element of census and element of salvation and putting those two together, God is counting, the census part, all the people who trust in him, right? Um, and then we come to verse 7, where it says, All my springs are in you. Now, is he talking about actual water when these people are singing and playing instruments to praise God? What sort of springs does he have in mind in verse 7? Mike. Okay, yeah, and, and the NASB does supply that phrase of joy, so springs of joy. So I think that does fit. It's sort of this figure of, you know, sp right. Yeah, good, good. So I, we could say it this way. There's this joy found with God's people in the place God's chosen. So we'll come back to that in a bit. What are some repeated thoughts that we see here in this psalm? Short psalm, but there's still some words that get repeated a lot. Some of them are synonyms. Tina, do you have one? Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Don't raise your hand. You throw me off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Norma. Yeah, Zion or Jerusalem or Holy Mountain. Okay, yes? Okay, we have this idea of born repeated in four, five, six. All right. So Zion and Jerusalem, the idea of being born. Okay, yeah. Being Right, okay. All right, so bringing those two ideas together. Along those lines of bringing those ideas together, what do we see, for example, in verse 2? The Lord what? The Lord loves, okay. And then in verse 3, we have what kind of things? Glorious things. And in verse 7, 
there's this idea of springs of joy are in you or I'm rejoicing in you, right? Yeah, so there's celebration, affection, relationship, all those sorts of ideas, but there's three different words, so it's not as clear to see, I think, unless we think about it for a minute. What's sort of the division here of this? I think verses 1 through 3, about God loving Jerusalem, and then verses 4 through 6, God saving people from all nations, but particularly the people of Israel, and then the last idea, one, verse 7, has this idea of praise. What kind of psalm do you think that this would be considered? Yeah, psalm of praise. That's a fairly easy one, I think. I don't think we're going to take this as a lament, right? It doesn't have a lot of features of wisdom. What's that? It's not imprecatory, right? There's not a lot of features of wisdom, which doesn't mean it's not part of the wisdom literature, but it's not this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. It's just talking exclusively about the righteous. So, yes, I think it's, a, it's kind of a praise psalm, praise him. Okay? What's that? Um... We'll talk about that in a minute. I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. Is this prophetic in some way? I think it definitely points to God's plan for all the peoples, and, and so we'll get into that here in a few minutes. What are some truths about God that we see? Okay, God loves his people. Okay. Okay, yeah, he's set up on high. If his foundation is the mountains, we tend to think that that's the top of things, right? But God's like, you know, the, the, there's another psalm where it says, the earth is my footstool and all it contains, right? So, what's exalted to us is low to God, okay? What else? Yes, Norma. He exalt. Okay, high regard for the people of Zion, okay. God establishes his people, okay. What about our response to God in verse 7? What's a proper response to God? There's like our... Okay? It's not wrong, right? Um, singing and playing the flutes, right? But for those of you who can't, um, it's joy, right? And praise to God, right? So God, on the, on, under question 5, God deserves praise. Under question 6, we're supposed to give God praise, right? Um so what I wrote down on number five, God sticks with his promises. God blesses all people through his chosen people. I think we have that sense as well. We'll talk about that in a moment. Some truths about us. Uh, what do we see as far as truths about us? We, always talk, we already talked about the idea of praise. Any other truths about us from this psalm? About people in general? Yeah, a desire to be included in God's census or his list, right? Eric? Seems like the, um, this psalm was written for the benefit of the people to kind of lift them up, remind them who they are, which is something that we always do. Yeah. Yeah, so parallels with our union with Christ, their relationship with God as his covenant people for the Israelites was something that should have helped stabilize their faith in following after God, right? Okay. Anything else? Things that we see about us from this psalm? Okay. Yeah, yeah. God is working in all the people's not just the Israelites, even though he's given them this exalted place. Good. 
All right, so let's, let's tie these things together. Let me try to bring these, these ideas together for us. In, I think it was 1947, there was a lot of excitement about the restoration of the people of Israel to the land of Zion, right? And ever since that point, ever since that point, there has been this expectation that God's promises in the prophets, for some people anyway, are being fulfilled exclusively in the nation of Israel in our present time. But here's the challenge with that vision. I'm not saying that our disposition should be to oppose Israel, that we should just sort of leave them to their own devices and say, tough luck, a lot of people hate you, hope it all goes well. At the same time, I think if we see present-day Israel as the fulfillment of everything that's in the prophetic writings, we sell God short of what he actually promised was going to be this vision of the future, right? And I think that we potentially can fail to see God's purpose has always been larger than just the nation of Israel. Although the nation of Israel has a real significant and prominent place in what God is doing. And so when we start off here with this idea that God loves Jerusalem, we see this idea that it is because it's the place he's chosen to reveal himself. His foundation is there. It's the gates of Zion more than the other dwelling places of Jacob. Jacob was in a lot of places, both in the land of Israel and um, figuratively speaking, as they're traveling through the wilderness, there's a lot of wandering. They're in Egypt for a while, then they're in the wilderness for a while. Some of them are in this side of the Jordan. Some of them are on that side of the Jordan, some to the north, some to the south. But God's place of dwelling among his people, he established to be the city of Jerusalem. And so we, we look at this in the context of some of the things that we see in the New Testament. And it, it really brings an interesting perspective on it because when you come to a passage like Acts 7, which I'm just going to read one verse from. But in Acts 7, um, Paul talks about this fact, um, not Paul, but rather uh, rather Stephen. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? And yet at the same time, you have in 2 Samuel 7, David laying out this vision for building a house for God. And God says, yes, that's a good thing. You're not going to do it. Your son Solomon is going to do it. But yes, this is a good thing. So why on the one hand does God say to David, yes, save things up so your son can build me a house. And yet say through the mouth of Stephen and these other passages from the Old Testament that God doesn't need a house. And the reality is God never needed the city of Jerusalem or the temple or the people of Israel And yet he chose to put himself in relationship with them. And so the fact that they have a temple, the fact that that is the place that God chose to reveal himself in many powerful and special ways is a sign of God's love for Jerusalem and by extension the people of Israel. Not only is it the place God chose to reveal himself, but it is also a place where he has chosen to glorify and exalt that place. Now, we have to recognize the place is only exalted because God picked it, right? It's not that this place is better than all other places. It's not the tallest mountain. It's not the most majestic scenery. It's not any of those reasons. It's the fact that God, in his loving 
choice and covenant and relationship with the people of Israel, said, I choose you, I will dwell with you, this is the place where I'm going to do it, so this place will be exalted among the nations because I'm there. And if we don't have all of those components, it's going to skew our perspective. And that's where I think um, you know, some of the modern-day Zionism kind of thoughts have potentially gone wrong because there is an assumption that God is there just because these are the people who are descended from God's people. And God is only present with them to the extent that they are actually following and trusting in Him. And Romans has a whole lot to say about the fact that there are a majority of the nation of Israel has been set aside through unbelief and will not be restored until Jesus comes back. That's not an excuse to attack people of Jewish or Israelite descent. That's not an excuse to say, well, God's forgotten about them, so we should too. That's just a recognition of the fact that modern-day Israel is not a theocratic kingdom over which God dwells, which he has promised to bless in the way that this psalm describes like it was in the old days. There's no king ruling in Israel right now. There's no legitimate priesthood serving in Israel right now. All of these things are, have fallen apart, but they wait the return of Christ. So God loves Jerusalem because he chose the people and because he revealed himself there, made it his place, and as a result, that place is exalted because he's there. But it goes beyond that not only does God love Jerusalem, but God has a purpose to save people from all nations. And so when we have this imagery in Psalm 87 that we have people from Egypt and Babylon and all these other places, we have, as was already pointed out, the remarkable fact that here are people who were God's enemies, here are people who attacked God's people, and yet here are people that God brings some of them to salvation. Um, this argues against the idea that God had no place for the Gentiles in the Old Testament. And we should not expect that God had no place for the Gentiles because Genesis 12 makes it very clear God's purpose has always been to bless all the nations of the earth through the people that he's chosen. And most specifically, through the son who had come descended from the line of Abraham and later of David and later of all these others as prophesied. And so the fact that God says here, there are some from all these pagan nations who are going to come and trust in me, that is a fulfillment of what Genesis 12 is talking about. I chose Abraham. I chose Abraham's descendants. As Paul says in Galatians, I specifically chose this one descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ the Messiah, and as a result, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Salvation, as Paul says in another place, has come through the Jews. And even Jesus, I think, said this in the gospel. Salvation comes through the Jews, but specifically through one Jew, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so this plan that is unfolded that God is going to save people, God saves people from Egypt, Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia. Despite these being Gentile nations, despite these being his enemies, the enemies of his people, and therefore his enemies for much of their history, and I think it does to the question that Norma raised about whether this is prophetic. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and tribe and people and tongue, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, 
clothed in white robes, palm branches in their hands. They cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so if there is this reality that people from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth are going to be brought to salvation, what is the means by which this takes place? It takes place through the descendant of Abraham, fulfilling the promises God had made centuries, even millennia before. Jesus comes, lives, dies, is raised, exalted with God in heaven, coming again someday. It comes through the reality of the Jews rejecting the message of the gospel by and large. Most of them reject it. And so Paul in his ministry turns to the Gentiles. The rest of the apostles in their ministry largely turn to the Gentiles after an initial outpouring of God's Spirit among the Jewish people. And so we stand in this gap in which God ministers through a group that is composed not primarily of his people Israel, but primarily of pagan nations, of those who had been God's enemies, of those who had no right to expect necessarily that they would be blessed to experience salvation other than glimpses here and there in the Old Testament. We, as the church, have the opportunity to share in the salvation that is ministered. Just a point of application. It's real easy in America for us to think that we're the people of Israel. There's that favorite verse that gets put on t-shirts and quoted all over the place. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and all those sorts of things. That's not given to us. Now, does the same God who gave it to Israel respond similarly to people who repent. Yes, look at the city of Nineveh and the people of Assyria. Jonah comes, prophesies judgment, they repent, and, and God spares them for a time, right? And yet, it's real easy for people in our day to quote that verse in the middle of a context in which our lives are ruled by greed and lust and pride and all the sins that sometimes we hold up as virtues in our country. And say, of course God's going to bless us. We're America. We're in some sense God's chosen people. No, we are not. We are only God's people to the extent that he has shown grace and mercy to us and to the extent that we are following after the Savior that he has given. And so if we're not following Jesus, we have no reason to expect God's blessing. And even if we are following Jesus, when almost everyone around us is not, there's the reality that, like Elijah, we may find ourselves in very difficult spots trying to follow Jesus. Now, there's also the hope that God gave to Elijah, which is this. You think you're the only one. You're not. Here's 7,000 other people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. You know what that means? There's a whole lot more people than you and I give credit for who are going to be with us in heaven someday from a variety of denominational backgrounds, from a variety of personal experiences, from a variety of cultural and ethnic locations. And so that should give us hope. But there's also this reality that um, even though there are many that God saves out of many pagan nations, there are also many who don't believe. And our nation at the moment has a whole lot more in common with Egypt and Babylon and Philistia and all the rest in their moments of turning away from God than in their moments of following after God, right? And so, what's our job in the midst of that? Well, if God saves people 
from all of these backgrounds, how does he say he's going to do it? You and I going out and telling them, right? So it's not just God says it in the Old Testament and then zap, Revelation 7, 9, it just God magically puts them all in heaven, right? What's the in-between part? It's people going and proclaiming God to the nations. Whether it's the nation we're from or other nations or God's people Israel, whoever, God's word has to be proclaimed for what is described in Revelation 7, 9 to take place. And God carries it out, but God uses us to do it. So, summertime. I've probably seen more people walk by my house today than I did for like a week in the wintertime, right? So what are you doing about the fact that your neighbors are out and about? How many of you have talked to one of your neighbors this week? How many of you have gone beyond talking to them and saying, oh, it's hot outside, gas prices are terrible, I wish who, you know, this person was in office or that whatever. How many of you have gone beyond that to say, let me tell you about my Jesus. I've been stuck home the last three days because the kids were sick. So I haven't had a whole lot of opportunity to do this. And the one opportunity I had on the phone, I didn't do a great job with with somebody at the clinic when I called them about something about Maggie's MRI. Just follow up on when the next one would be. So I'm not acting like I'm perfect in this. But what I am saying is, as soon as the kids are better and I can take them out to the park or we go to a restaurant or whatever else, we're going to be having a conversation with people. So what about you guys? Are you going to be having those conversations with people? And we can come up with all sorts of excuses. It's hot outside. I'm busy. I've got things to do. That's all true. But God didn't put us here ultimately to be busy, sit in air conditioning, and watch TV. So if people from all the nations are going to come and praise God's name, you and I got to do what God's called us to do. So God though he calls people from all the nations, has a special place for his people Israel among those who are recorded. In verse 6, the Lord will count when he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Now, this is interesting because I've been thinking about something for Sunday with regard to Father's Day, and one of the, one of the examples of bad fatherhood in the Old Testament is Jacob and his favoritism, right, among his sons. This sounds like favoritism. Oh yeah, these people I like better. The rest of you get in, but I really like these people better. Why is it not favoritism for God to do what this verse describes? I think the answer is this. God has chosen the people of Israel. They didn't deserve it. They weren't big and impressive. We don't really understand all the why that God did it. Other than the places where God says, I did it to show my glory among the people. So God chooses a small nation without military might and brings them through all sorts of difficulty and is faithful to them despite repeated unbelief and idolatry to show what sort of God that he is. And so at the end of it, if he says, these are my special people who have not deserved my love, but I have been faithful to the promises I've made to them, there's a sense in which we ought to say, yeah, we can rejoice with those who rejoice, right? And not be jealous of the fact that God has set apart this unique role for the people of Israel. That doesn't mean that God is doing favoritism for the reasons that you and I do favoritism, which is because it gets us something. Did God get anything from the people of Israel? Like, 
these people beat all their neighbors in military battles, so I'm going to get lots of glory because they're going to keep doing that. No. Does God get the opportunity to say, these are the largest group of people in the world, so people are going to say, wow, look at this nation, he picked the biggest nation. No. So God's not doing it for the reasons that you and I would do it and would be considered favoritism. God is just saying, I made promises to this group of people and I'm going to fulfill them to the end. And all of you get to share in the fact that there's spillover blessing from what I'm doing of them and through Jesus and all those sorts of things. This idea of God recording names in his book, uh, you could jot down Ezekiel 13, 9, uh, Isaiah 4, 3, or Psalm 69, 28. We see it a few places else in the Old Testament, but God has a special place for his people Israel among those he records for salvation. Then we have finally this idea that God will be praised in Jerusalem. Those who sing and play instruments will praise God. I think when it comes to this, um, I think it's really easy sometimes for us to sing songs without thinking about what we're singing. Or to participate in the act of singing the songs or playing the instruments without... um, a sense of fervency and passion and amazement at how great God is. So if we say, um, you know, something like, Oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder, and there's no awesome wonder in my heart, there's an extent to which I'm saying words I don't really mean. Right? And I'm not saying that it doesn't start by just being here and doing the thing together. Right? Because... We need people playing instruments. We need people singing. And if nobody hear those things, it's difficult for us to collectively sing to God, right? But we shouldn't be content with that as the stopping point, right? That's the starting point. We're here. We sing. We play. We're doing it. But we need to think about it in such a way that the truths about God and who he is stir our soul. And I think there's a large extent to which if our souls are not stirred on a regular basis day after day throughout the week, going to be really hard to muster up a degree of excitement on Sunday, and not just excitement, right? Because there's an appropriate place for sorrow, for reflection, for confession, for all of those sorts of things, even things like anger against sin and against the evil that's in the world, Um, discouragement about the state of the difficulty that's in our lives. There's a place for a broad range of emotions, but when it comes to God and how great He is, there should be a joy and an excitement and a fervency that I think is often lacking when we bring praise to God, right? Sometimes it's because we're worried about what people around us are going to think. Uh, sometimes it's because we're more concerned about technical accuracy than... Um, I, what I mean by that is, I'm not saying be careless when you play an instrument or when you sing, but if you can't hit every note... I would rather that you sing fervently and let God sort it all out than that you just say, oh, I'm worried people are going to think I can't sing good, so I'm not going to, right? There's going to be some day when I think probably our being off-key or whatever else maybe gets fixed in heaven, maybe not, I don't know. But in the meantime, we are what we are. God wants a wholehearted devotion and expression of praise to Him far more than he wants something that would be seen as 
the epitome of musical accomplishment on some TV competition or in a concert or whatever else, right? And it's not an either or, but I'm just saying don't stop singing because of all these sorts of things. Don't stop playing because you say, I might make a mistake. That's part of it. We move on, right? So there's people who are singing and there's people who are playing flutes and they're not saying, I'm not going to sing because it's just not a good singing day today. They're saying, God is amazing and I'm going to sing about it. They're not saying, oh, my flute is not quite right today. It's not a good flute day. They're playing the flute to God's glory, right? And the thing that they're proclaiming is this, all my springs of joy are in you. God is fulfilling the culmination of his plans for the world and so much of it is centered on this place called Zion or Jerusalem and so if God is excited about it, you and I ought to be excited about it. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 1 talks about, right? We wait for Jesus from heaven, who delivers us from coming wrath, who fulfills all God's promises, who descends in this place in Jerusalem and becomes the king that he has long deserved to be, and everyone bows before him. And 2 Thessalonians 1 says, when he comes out to be marveled at among those who have believed, those sorts of things ought to stir our souls. What often stirs our souls, or what often occupies our thoughts, is complaining and distraction and all of these other sorts of things, because that's just how the people around us live. But God has called us to something more than that. And going back to the middle part about God saving people from all these tribes and tongues and nations, that is ultimately a work of God's Spirit. But to the extent that you and I impact it, it is far more effective if people see someone who is excited about what God is doing in the world instead of as lost and hopeless as everyone else around them. Psalm 48.2 says this. Let me read it for you. It says, 48, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God is holy mountain, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. And then a little bit later, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us until death. And yes, that is addressed to the people of Israel. And yes, all those same things are true to God's people today. He is our God until death. We proclaim into the next generation and we will be with him to the end. So, truths about God. God sticks with his promises. God blesses all people through his chosen people and God deserves praise. Truths about us. What are we supposed to do? We should love what God loves. Not the establishment of temporary and fleeting kingdoms politically, whether it's Israel or some other place, but see this future hope that God has for his people Israel, which means we share the gospel with those who are descended from it, and we look forward to the great things God has promised, not the temporary and impartial fulfillment of what we see in our daily lives. 
we should see God's blessing through all people, not just right here in this place, but throughout the whole world, and in fact recognize that there's a real sense in which we are the outsiders looking in on what God is doing, not the center of what God is doing, and everybody else focuses on us. Because it's real easy for us to have that attitude. And then finally, we should praise God for this amazing work. If God is going to keep all His promises as He exalts Jerusalem, saving people from across the globe, across time and space, that's something worth praising God about. And so, when you go back out there tomorrow, or even tonight, and you say, I got work to do, or I got this project on my house, or this thing's more expensive than I thought it was going to be, or uh, unexpected sickness came up, or uh, aging is catching up to me, or whatever all these other things might be that come into our lives and drag our focus away from the amazing things that God is doing in the world, take hope because God continues to fulfill His plan. He said to you and I, you can be a part of it, so let's be a part of it. Proclaiming the gospel, seeing what God is doing, and praising Him as He brings in results. Let's pray. Dear God, as we look at a passage like this, um, I think it's good for us to consider many of these things. We are not ultimately the center of all that you're accomplishing in the world, and so we ought to be humble. We have been saved out of pagan ways of life. We ought to be thankful for that. We have been given the opportunity to share in the glory of what you are unfolding in this world. So let us praise you and diligently uh, carry it out. Lord, you love Zion, you love your people Israel, and you have loved us through what you have unfolded through them, through Jesus. And we thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.